this past week, and this has been uh, uh, talked about a lot, probably too much over the past week, but this past week a CNN anchor commented that one of the ways the United States can eliminate racism is for everyone to accept a black or brown version of Jesus. Now, the statements like that are not meant to unify, <laughs> obviously, because uh, obviously that when you talk about uh, the content of one's character being more important than the, uh, the color of one's skin, uh, and that's a Martin Luther King uh, quote. Uh, I, I, I took some liberty with that, but the content of Jesus' character is really what matters there, not certainly not the color of his skin. We don't talk about that very much, nor need to. But this comment then was uh, very quickly challenged by those who defended Jesus' whiteness. And the bickering went back and forth. Again, it didn't provide any unity, only uh, uh, banter for arguments. The uh, ensuing emotional debate, though, over Jesus' skin color dwarfed any consideration for who he was, uh, who he, how he taught, who he represented, and the plan of God that uh, we are all uh, a part of. And I, I guess we couldn't expect anything more from those who don't understand those things. But it pointed to something we should always be reminded of in this age, um, even within ourselves. The tendency of human nature is idolatry. The, the tendency of human nature is to make God in our image instead of accepting that he made us in his. That's a profound concept one that needs to be understood, especially by those he has called and chosen in this age. It's thinking like this that has caused many divisions in modern Christianity. And we just need to get above that. It, those things just don't matter, ultimately. Uh, they are not, they are not uh, salvation issues. It's not something that we should allow to divide us. This one little point, but there are thousands of little points that we can let uh, divide us if we let it. Um, even without considering denominations with language differences and cultural differences, which you'd expect they'd have a different um, organization or denomination for their language or their culture or geographically, there remain tens of thousands of churches today, all with different doctrines, all practicing uh, different traditions, even with their own versions and, I assume, colors of Jesus Christ. Uh, we should not allow ourselves to be pulled into arguments like this. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 11 here. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes something uh, about the church of God that we need to keep in mind, especially as we move toward the Passover. 2 Corinthians 11, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. He says, Oh, that I would bear, or that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, one husband, not several thousand versions of one husband. The husband isn't changed for the church based upon their likes or preferences or so they could relate to him on their terms instead of learning to relate to him on his, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This is a reference to a purification process that is alluded to throughout the New Testament. John talks about it as well, that lies in our hands. Obviously, God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, is what purifies us. His word washes us clean, as we read in Ephesians 5. But we have to take the initiative to do that. Verse 3, he says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. This was an issue in the first century. We, sh- we shouldn't have expected anything over the period of 2,000 years or so after that that it would be any different instead of it's expanded. Again, betrothed to one husband. Remember this. The church of God, us, we are betrothed to one husband. Not several different versions even within the church of God. 
We are obligated to understand Jesus Christ for who he is and not bring him down to our level to try to relate to him. We are supposed to aspire to be at his level. The bride must be prepared to receive him at his return. The church of God does not look for more tolerable alternatives to the true Christ. Rather, she strives to change herself. She's sewing those precious stones of character into her wedding dress to receive him at his at his return. And this word simplicity that Paul uses here, it's translated from the Greek word haplotes. Haplotes is spelled H-A-P-L-O-T-E-S. And it means intellectual honesty, free from any pretense or hypocrisy. And he uses that with the phrase in Christ. <clears throat> haplotes in Christos. So simplicity here has much more to do with that purification process. What remnants of false Christs do we have within us? What misunderstandings of his word are we, are we misapplying uh, in our lives? This is what this purification process is about. It lasts a lifetime, but it, it, it takes on a focus prior to the Passover in this examination we go through. This purification process is what prepares the church to marry Christ at his return. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, John mentions it, 1 John 3, verse 3. He talks about this purification process. And this return, this marriage that we talked about last week, this mystery of the marriage to Christ uh, is is something that should not be a mystery to us. Christ's helpmeet will know him fully and has to know him fully to submit to him. This is a lifelong process of learning who he is, how he thinks, so that we can adjust our thinking and our life as well to suit him. We are to subject ourselves to him, we are to submit to him, and we are to revere him. That's what Ephesians 5 says. So this is what our lives in this day and age should be about. She must be able to find and face where she is lacking I see many people trying to turn this, the feast, uh, the spring feast into this positive thing. It's all about, we're all focused on finding sin and putting it out and it's depressing and, you know, all this stuff is being revealed to us and we don't want to deal with it. It's, let's talk about positive things. Let's talk about the resurrection. Let's talk, no, no, no. It's called the feast of unleavened bread and that bread is a recognition. Putting out the leavening is like putting out sin. So the spiritual equivalent for us is to look within ourselves for sin and put it out. Now, that's not exclusive of ignoring Christ within us, seeing elements and aspects of his nature growing in us over time. That's very encouraging. But oftentimes to see that, those sins of pride and, and foolishness and lust and fear all have to be put aside. They have to be put out, not put aside. They have to be put out. Look at First uh, First Corinthians here. Uh, I'm sorry, Colossians. Let's read that. Colossians one. We'll read verses twenty four through twenty eight. Uh, Colossians one. He's talking or referring to here of something that qualifies us and disqualifies us. Obviously, it's the acceptance of the the blood of Jesus Christ as a replacement for our sins, paying for our sins. And uh, recognizing that that is what qualifies us, but we still have to embrace it. And then he also talks about qualification. Uh, we'll expand on this in a moment. I just want to read this scripture to set this up, though. First, this is Colossians 1, verse 24. He says, "Now uh, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, there's nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. What Paul is referring to here, and it kind of gets lost in the translation, he's referring to what was lacking in him with respect to those afflictions that Christ went through. That he had to go through these same afflictions to develop that character, that strength to get through it. And he did that for the benefit of the church, is what he's saying here. Verse 25, "...of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God." which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So Paul saw his own suffering as a further participation with Christ for the benefit of the church. He saw that service on the same 
uh, not the same level, but it's the same the same act, the same work that they were doing. Um, uh, then verse twenty six. Uh, and let me read 25 again because I want to. I want to connect these two. There, this one one thought, one statement, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to His saints. So this is alluding to another mystery here. Uh, verse 27: To them God willed to make known. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Again, referring to that purification process. By enduring persecution, Paul saw that he was growing in the character of Christ. So that as he taught and led the church at that time, they would be growing in that character as well to their benefit. The word saints here, we've talked about this before that he uses, is translated from the Greek word hagios, spelled H-A-G-I-O-S. It means to be holy or sanctified, and literally the holy or sanctified ones. Paul's now including the repentant Gentile believers in this group. Now, we've discussed... Uh, in previous mystery sermons, we discussed the implications of Christ in us when we reviewed the mystery that is Jesus Christ. Most do not know who he is because he has not been revealed to them. They know the name, they know a version, but is it the true representation of Christ that they're referring to? He's only truly known by those that are led by his spirit, uh, the Spirit of God, to practice every word of God. He said that, Matthew 7, verse 23. We reviewed that then. For those who are not led by his Spirit into practicing every word of God, for those who are not doing this, the nature of Christ in his church is also a mystery. Christ in his church. This is the ninth message in our series on the mysteries of God. Previously, we've discussed the mysteries of God himself. The first one of those messages was an introduction. But we've since then gone through the mystery of God himself, his will, his wisdom, his Christ, the kingdom of God as a mystery, the faith. And last week we discussed the mystery of marriage. This is number 8 of 14 in that process. What With each one of these, we've learned how special these revelations are, how unique they are, and how unique the people are to whom they've been revealed. But we've also understood why so few understand them and why so few choose to aspire to live by them. Today we will review the mystery of Christ in his church. And we'll do this from two perspectives. I don't want to be redundant with the one that we talked about, about Jesus Christ. But there's something in the church itself, made up of every individual within his church, that needs to be seen in this context as we move toward the Passover and sharing and all that together. The first thing we'll look at is respecting Christ in us. And the second thing we'll look at is respecting Christ in others, specifically those in whom Christ dwells. I uh, read a story that was told by a, a, an old television preacher, uh, Donald Barnhouse. I don't want to say he was old. He wasn't old at the time. I'm saying he goes goes way back like the 1950s, 60s, or 70s. Uh, and this is a, an interesting story. Uh, in the ancient world, all money was made from metal, uh, heated until liquid, then poured into molds, and allowed to cool. When the coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth off the edges uh, of the coins, the uneven edges that came out, which is typical, and those edges of gold or silver were then put back into the uh, the melting pot and used on, on future coins. But sometimes those who then took those coins and put them into circulation shaved them a little too much <laughs> and shaved off some of the edges for their own their own personal gain. The coins were comparably soft, so it was easy to do. In one century, though, this is uh, in Athens, more than 80 laws were passed in that 100-year period to stop the practice of shaving down the coins that were then in circulation. 
But some money changers were men of integrity uh, who would accept no counterfeit money. Counterfeit at that time would have been a coin that represents a weight and a value in gold or silver but is, is considerably lacking. That's why they used scales because it was the weight of the gold that gave it its value, not the coin itself. Boy, how times have changed. <laughs> um, they were men of honor, considered men of honor, who put only genuine, fully weighted money into circulation. These men had a name, a Greek name called dokimos. Dokimos, D-O-K-I-M-O-S. It literally means approved. These are proved coins. A man of integrity has weighed this, and it is a true coin to use. It's worth its true value. I'd like to talk about this concept with respect to our approval process, this purification that leads to our uh, approval process before God. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 13 here. 2 Corinthians 13, we'll read verses 1 through 5. This will be the third time, Paul writes here, the third time I am coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every uh, word be established. I think he was saying that three times it was three witnesses. Verse 2, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. There's power in this position uh, in representation of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Verse 3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So the flesh is weak, all of us. We can't represent that kind of power. The power belongs to God. But when he gives authority, when he gives stewardship to someone like Paul to act, he will act in the power of God. Verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Remember what we talked about, the faith and what it was? It was literally the faith of Jesus Christ in us. He says here, test yourselves, prove yourselves. Have there been any edges shaved off? In your understanding of Jesus Christ, your understanding of your calling and election, your understanding before you receive the Passover, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. We, Paul and his entourage. The word disqualified here is translated from the Greek word ah. Dokimos. So the ah before in the Greek is the negative qualifier to the word dokimos. This is the opposite of being approved. This is being disapproved. Ah dokimos means to be unacceptable. It means to be unapproved. In Romans one twenty eight, the same word is used to describe those who are not discerning. That's Romans one twenty eight. They're not discerning. They're not distinguishing. They don't make a connection. They don't, they, I should say, they don't recognize a disconnection between one representation of Christ and the other. And they are also described in Romans one twenty eight as being void of judgment. All three of those would lead any of us to being disapproved before God. Christ's blood approves us. But if we don't value that sacrifice, if we don't value the bread we take on a, on a, on a, uh, Sabbath, or I should say a Passover night. And we don't recognize the implication of what Christ in us means. We're, we're disqualified with respect to even recognizing the body of Christ within his church. There's a way that must be done. A way that is misunderstood by so many others. We have to be discerning. We have to be distinguishing. And we have to use wise judgment. Without those, the approval process won't work. Conversely, one who is approved would be all those things, discerning, distinguishing, wise in judgment. Um, this phrase he uses here, whether you are in the faith, is a reference to the faith of Christ within us. In this examination process he, he referred to, are we actually looking for evidence of Jesus Christ within us? 
And what, what, what would you look for? Um, can you walk on water? Can you turn water to wine? Can you heal people? Cast out demons? Is that the evidence? He makes reference in other uh, gospel messages that some people are doing those things, but they're still walking in sin. Lawlessness, he called it. And he told them, even though they called him Lord, uh, he said he never knew them. The question's deeper in finding Christ within us. Do we remain fully submitted to God and his will, as Jesus Christ was? Do we remain fully repentant of our sins? There's a beginning of this, recognizing that before we are baptized, but that's an ongoing process for the rest of our lives, maintaining that course and direction that we turned 180 degrees on on that path to walk the opposite way. And do are we fully immersed in obedience to his will? And those are the things that we should be looking for now. And we look for them led by his spirit into all truth. This is not about our opinions. Yeah, I feel more Christ-like than I was last year, so I must be. What do you think? Do I, to you, do I see more Christ-like? <laughs> Don't answer that question. This is not about what people think of us. It's not about judgment laid upon the church. You know, it's not like, what wonderful, incredible humanitarian effort have you sponsored over the past year? There are plenty of humanitarian efforts led by people who do not know Jesus Christ. Those aren't the gauges. Those things are fine and wonderful, but they aren't the measure The measure are these things. I'll repeat them. Are you fully submitted to God, but by his spirit into his word to understand that and what that means? Are we fully repentant of our sins? Or do we just say, oh, I'm just going to have these for the rest of my life. Why do I have to keep uh, repenting of them every day? I'm always going to be blunt. I'm always going to be angry. I'm always going to be all these things. No. Even if you are always going to be struggling with the sin, continue to struggle against that sin. And are we always fully immersed in obedience to his will? That we don't find that out unless we're studying the scriptures and trying to apply them. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18, I'll just read this to you. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18, this word dokemos is used again. Paul writes, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. It's not about opinion. It's about the word of God. This approval process is conducted under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to align our being with the word of God. This is how the word of God gets written onto our hearts. It doesn't rely on our own opinions or those of others. Look at Romans chapter 8 here. Romans chapter 8, we'll read verses 1 through 11. This uh, whole section here is talking about walking in respect of his spirit. This walk is a reference to our Christian walk throughout life and being in connection and uh, ongoing, like praying always, always being in contact with Christ on our minds and hearts. Verse uh, 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the favor he earned for us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So have, over the past couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months of you examining yourself prior to the Passover, are you recognizing this war that's going on in your brain, in your mind, between your fleshly urges and the Spirit of God trying to lead you to a higher level of existence? Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This does not do away with the law. Paul says this in other places. I don't need to go there. This is what breaking the law does for us. It gives us death. We've been freed from that because we died in Christ. He goes on to describe Uh, Verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, flesh can't keep the law, even though we're told to do that, we're going to stumble and fail at it. And the first time we do, we're dead. 
uh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The only one ever lived in the flesh, fully God, who kept his law perfectly. Never crossed that line in his mind. Never had the intent to sin. Everybody else, we're on the other side of that line. And we do so every day. If we've examined ourselves properly, you recognize the sin that's within you. Does that hurt? Yes. Is it discouraging? Yes. But if, if, if you don't recognize that, you're not going to value the Passover. We won't value what was done for us. Verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice that's in us. It's not, it's not that Christ did that for us so we don't have to which some some who don't know him say quite often. Um, let me read that again, verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What What's leading you? We all started at different places. Some, some of us had tremendous amounts of things to overcome, wired in us. Bad practices prior to God opening our mind that still exist within us. We we can be blunt, we can be uh, sporadic or unstable, and we have to learn how to control those kinds of things. The power of God's Spirit gives us the ability to do that, and the Word guides us through that. Others may not have started. You may have been reared in the church. Maybe you didn't have these outlandish sins uh, that some of us had to repent of and have to fight the rest of our lives. That's great, but it doesn't mean you're not in a fight. Now, according to Paul, if you're flesh and you're led by the Spirit of God, there's a war going on in your mind that you need to recognize in order to truly appreciate the Passover uh, and to prepare for it as well. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds, not their brains, but their minds. That's a spiritual element on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. This is an acknowledgement that we are not just flesh and blood animals. There is a spirit that God put in every human being that he wants to connect with his spirit and thereby live at a much higher level. In order for that to happen, we have to be led by his spirit. Verse 7, but the carnal mind is enmity, so it's hostile. It's contentious. Every one of us has a fleshly brain and a body that's contentious against God. We must admit that. We must admit that battle's going on. Or the battle's going to overtake us. You know, if we don't recognize the fight, we'll lose the fight. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God is the same. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One in the body of Christ walks in respect of his spirit. The, the, the example he set for us is the example by which we are to live. And that, that walk is submitting to Christ's lead within and aspiring to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, even though he did that and, and we struggle at it. It is by his example that we learn to do that. That righteous requirement of the law, it's the highest standard of obedience to every word of God. And we will never achieve that in the flesh. But we must always be on that path. It's much more directional than it is a destination. Leave the destination to God. Know the direction. Stay on that path. Walk it. Crawl it if you have to. But keep the direction. Those who are not led by God's Spirit can't do that. They don't live in spirit and in truth. As John wrote in John 4.24, 
They can't live that way. So they look for excuses. They look for, you know, things. Well, I don't have to do that because I can't do that, so I have to do other things. They are not drawn to that high standard. And lacking the faith to keep it, they don't trust in God that it is achievable. The saints do. Not that we achieve it. We trust in God that he would not have called us, elected us, put us on this path, and set this goal for us if it was not achievable. To us, it is impossible. To him, all things are possible. This is the basis of our faith. Without his spirit in us, though, we don't belong to Christ. This is a distinguishing factor that we have to see when we look around at everyone who professes Christianity, even within the church of God, even within ourselves, do we confess what we profess? Let's begin reading in verse 12 now. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This doesn't mean we shouldn't eat or or work or take care of our bodies. This is not asceticism. This is not Gnosticism. This is a, a combination of understanding what God is doing with us now in our flesh and preparing us for in the Spirit. But everything we do in the flesh, everything we seek, everything we want in the flesh must be filtered by His Spirit and His Word. And in the process of that filtering, we see what skips by. And we see and are reminded of every year our need for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is the family of God that we belong to, those who are led by his Spirit. This is not a credential of being part of a corporate body of men. Just just because they've got Church of God in the name, it doesn't mean that everybody there is led by his Spirit into all truth. And that doesn't mean that we are either. Okay, I've made it. I'm baptized. I keep the holy days, I avoid certain things that aren't food, and I keep the Sabbath. So I'm good. <laughs> I'm ready. If, if you are intellectually honest with yourself, dokimas, you'll see that's not true. And you'll see the need to keep fighting. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's talking about sonship placed in God's family by him, he himself. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see evidence of his spirit, his intentions, his desires, his aspirations in you. And not just for you, but for everyone else he's calling, everyone in the body of Christ that we, we will share that Passover with? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, in reference to what Paul was talking about earlier. Sons of God live as the sons of God. God, it's an admission, admission we should have and make every morning of our lives. And every night we go to bed, I intend to live as a, a child of God today. Those who belong to Christ do God's will and put to death the sinful deeds of their physical bodies. It's just a lifelong process. The body of Christ are those who are led by his spirit. That is the body of Christ. Those are the ones who are approved. The process of being purified. Just a couple of scriptures here. I want to talk about, I'm going to make this connection between being approved and being the body of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2 here. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Paul here says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved, dokimas, to God. And what are those qualifications, or some of them at least? A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Are you ashamed 
of yourself. Psychologists today will tell you, don't do that. Don't put those kinds of limitations on yourself. Don't judge yourself like this. Being, being ashamed is wrong. Well, no, being ashamed means we're doing something wrong. Can you stand before God, as David did, and say, test my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Do we have that kind of boldness to take on what God may lead us through to see that? That boldness comes from that. We don't want to be ashamed before God. Look at this next thing. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Those who are approved rightly divide the word of truth. They can use it, that double-edged sword. They've been practiced in it. They respect it. They're led by their God's Spirit within them to know how to use it. This is a this is critical. One in the body of Christ rightly divides the word of truth. Those are the ones who are dokimas. Those are the ones who are approved. Look at James chapter one here. And I'm just hitting on these for sake of time. Um, James uh, chapter one and verse twelve. He says this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, Dokimas, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So what is he saying? Enduring temptation. One in the body of Christ endures temptation. Now, this does not mean that they never stumble. Or that after they're baptized and washed clean, they don't go forward Uh, that they go for it in any kind of sinless nature. We have to fight and defeat a sinless nature, and we have to stay on that course. But they continue getting back up to keep walking after Christ. I tell this to people when I counsel them for baptism. It's much worse than you think. You're going to you're going to notice a lot more about yourself that needs to be repented of than you realize right now. In fact, God's going to lead you through that entire process by His Spirit and Word if you stay on that path. Spirit, Word, stay on that path. But when Satan knocks you to the ground, get back up, keep walking. In the family of God, there are no pink slips issued to those who keep trying. There are no pink slips at all. The only way we get off that path is if we decide to step off it. And that's all Satan's trying to get us to do. He can't knock us off. Not not if we're led by his spirit into all truth. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 again. This uh, I was amazed at how many times I came back to Paul's letters to Corinth here in this in the preparation of this very important good reads um, prior to good reads at all times but especially prior to the Passover first Corinthians 6 we'll read verses 12 through 20 Paul says all things are lawful for me but all things are not helpful again he's not talking about breaking God's law he's talking about uh, permissions Things, if he's led by God's Spirit into all truth, he knows where to step. He knows where to go. He doesn't have to put his own law around him or somebody else's law around him to achieve certain levels of righteousness. He's going much deeper with this. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He's talking here about addictions. Uh, That could be something that our mind defers to. And today, that could be anything today. Uh, video games, pornography, alcohol, um, drugs of any kind. Even eating gluttony is an effect of addiction to food. I mean, all of these things, we find ourselves being becoming tied to habit. I got to do this, I got to do that. The mind, the human nature in us is moving toward an addiction. We have to see that early on to deal with it. Otherwise, it becomes a massive conflict. One that many people never dealt with before being called into the church, never being baptized, never being given God's spirit, and never being led by his word. And it stays within them and they have to fight it the rest of their lives. Don't let yourself go there. Uh, 
verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be eating nice things or having nice meals. There's a control that has to be there. God's self-control embedded in his spirit. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The body of Christ. If you're baptized, you've been through the process of repentance and faith. You had hands laid upon you. You are part of the body of Christ. And everyone else that goes through the same process is as well. But this purification process that follows means we are tied by his spirit to his word. I hate to keep saying that, but it's something we need to remember always. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Refer that back to what we we talked about last week. We live in a society where it's a joke to be celibate before marriage. If you say, I believe believe sex belongs only in marriage in accordance with the scripture, you are an idiot. Look around you. I remember telling a co-worker 15, 20 years ago, uh, because I I had daughters, and they're going, boy, your hands are going to be full of them. So I said, well, you know, I... We're going to try to raise them as best we can, and we somehow got into this thing of, well, what, what, what are you going to tell them about about sex? And I says, well, we believe sex belongs in marriage. She rolled her eyes and thought, good luck, you know, I could see it on her face. Good luck with that, because that's never going to happen, because that's not the way it works in the world. But I think after last week's message on marriage, we understand why. And when we look around us at all the violations that have been committed on that, we know why marriage is so special. Not to the people of this world today. It's getting less special every day, but that stuff belongs in marriage, period. Marriage bed's undefiled. Anything outside of that, it's wrong. It's sinful. Is that is that thoroughly embedded in who we are? Or must we be tolerant? of those who don't believe that. Not not that we should be out there condemning them. But we should have that solidly based in our thinking. Uh, verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That connection is spiritual. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, uh, uh, man, man, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you know, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You want to know where the temple of God is in today's day and age? It's right inside you. That's where he lives. If we allow him, if we facilitate that. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That price was the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. No greater price could have been paid for you and us collectively. But it starts with every individual recognizing that, understanding what was done for them. Our thoughts and behavior individually are representative of the rule of Christ within us, or at least they should be. But it affects the entirety of the body of Christ, collectively. Discerning and respecting Christ in us is very important, but as we approach the Passover of Jesus Christ, We are to expand this awareness of Christ in us to respecting Jesus Christ within others of his body. Paul tells us that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 here. We'll read verses 23 through 32. How do we go about respecting Christ in others? 
he's talking about division as he does throughout most of the book of, of, of first and even second Corinthians, what causes division and so on. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But verse 23, he, he compares this with respect to the night of the Passover. Uh, so they were, they were making this kind of a meal and a celebration and they weren't waiting for others. They were not discerning that others also had God's spirit within them. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Passover is a commemoration of this. And these symbols should remind us of what he did for us. If, the, if, it's, if they're not, we haven't done a, a good enough job of, of evaluating ourselves prior to the Passover and recognizing why we're there. Verse 26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I uh, meant, try to mention this every year. I, I mention it on the night of the Passover as well. That the Passover is specifically for the members of the body of Christ. Those outside that body, not led by his spirit and word, and showing that example all year long, uh, will understand it. And they're only drinking condemnation to themselves. They're guilty of the body and the blood of Christ, but they don't recognize the, the, the price that was paid for them. Verse 28, here's this instruction again, but let a man examine himself or prove himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Is Christ in you? Are you still respecting Christ within you individually? Now, let's keep going. Verse 29, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This means a lot more than just a reference to the bread. Um, verse 30, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. This is an interesting verse. We, this may refer to those who are literally physically weak and sick, but this reference to many sleeping among you has got to be spiritual because of the reference to being dead. If we have dead people among us, that's pretty bizarre. And in fact, I think it's illegal. But it's not, how could that be referring to a physical body that is dead? My understanding of this has always been a spiritual application. In fact, as you're reading the scripture and you're wondering what it's actually saying, defer to spiritual. Okay, Defer to spiritual. It's a spiritually inspired word. It's a spiritually practiced word. Defer to spirit. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. This judgment process is part of the purification process. It's applying the word of God to ourselves in a spiritual mindset led by God's spirit within us. And if we, we take on that kind of judgment, we won't be judged outside of that. Discerning the body of Christ, again, is not just about bread. It's a recognition and appreciation for Christ in others of his body. Let me give you an example of how this works. Almost every year before the Passover, I get called by people who don't attend with us, who want to keep the Passover with us. I mean, they don't keep, they may keep the Sabbath on their, on their porch or their uh, patio or their living room couch, but they don't attend with anybody. The Passover rolls around and it becomes weighty to them, so they want to participate in the Passover with somebody, with a group of people in the body of Christ that they have ignored all year long. Should they be there? Your judgment. Should they be there? If they're not discerning the body of Christ. We're not doing them any favors by inviting them in the door. But, I, but I've, I've, I've stood up to people like that and I've tried to explain that. They complain to the home office about me. 
about how I'm, I'm preventing them from keeping the Passover. Shouldn't this be open to the public? Shouldn't anybody be able to come? No. That's not the example in Exodus 12. That's not what Christ said when in the upper room he had his disciples with him. And that's not what Paul said here. They have to be discerning of the body of Christ. Now, they can also be attending with this all year long. But they arrive late or they leave early. Or they don't acknowledge or treat the brethren the way they're supposed to. And the brethren are kind, we're we're generous, we're merciful, because the nature of Christ is in us, so we, we tolerate that. Should they be there either? Now, I can't necessarily prevent them, but I try to counsel them, help them to understand that they're baptized, they're members of the United Church of God, they're welcome to come to the Passover. But we all know, my uh, 10 years here, um, we've had some people nobody knew walking through the door. And when I tried to talk to them, I found out that they are not, they are not uh, members of the church. And they would sometimes even bring family members who weren't even baptized. And they're, and they're going through all these, what they would think are rituals, but commemorative, symbolic practice that we're going through. We try to mitigate that as much as we can. But we also want to be open, merciful, kind, congenial, welcoming. It's a very difficult balance to draw. What I'm referring to here is where we're at, personally and collectively. Do we know what's going on that night? Do we know what we've got to be doing all year long? in preparation for that night, not just as we get close to it. This evaluative process and recognizing aspects and the nature of Christ within us enables us to understand what we're going through that night. It's wholly inappropriate for anyone else. It's very, very important that as we take the Passover, we understand these things. But some think um, it's only about this one night of the year. I saw this in my before I came into the church. I saw people in the Catholic Church who never once attended, never went to confession. And according to the Catholic doctrine, you can't receive communion. But they would come every Christmas and every Easter, and they would receive communion, and they just kind of blew it off. I think that that attitude in many ways has seeped into the mindset of some who are trying as best they can, uh, in their, but, but in all the wrong ways, of respecting Christ within themselves and respecting Christ and others. It's, it, it, this is very important as we take the Passover, but it is only symbolic of this one night of the year. It's not exclusive to it. Neither is this evaluation process. This process is a process which we should go, be going through every day. It intensifies now so that we understand the importance of it. And it's intensified prior to the Passover because that night is so incredibly important to commemorate as he told us to, and to prepare for it as we should. Look back at the chapter 3 here of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll read verses 9 through 17. He's talking here about the church being the temple of God. Okay, these are not corporate boundaries of men. This This is not what your church is named It's not about the general practice of your church. This is about a spiritual organism, which is the body of Christ. It's spiritually connected. It's spiritually led by God's Spirit into his word to practice it, to live it, to have it written on them. Churches churches of men can facilitate that, but it only happens with God's Spirit and his word. And that's individually practiced and collectively brought together when he summons us to do so. Um, Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, For we are God's fellow workers. Yes. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building where he dwells, where his seed is thrown to grow. Fertile soil that he has prepared to grow his nature within us. Verse 10, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Notice that. Each one. 
Take heed. How are you adding to this building that is the body of Christ, the temple of the living God? Verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Everything is built on Christ. He is the model. Verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. Trials of this age. That's where God's spirit is noticed most. When everything's wonderful, rosy, peachy, when the church is growing to 100, 150,000 worldwide, when the, the, the church's publication is the most read one on the planet, when the, when the, uh, broadcast is the most watched, that's wonder, that's great. When we're collecting over $200 million a year so the work can be done, and we're growing, it's exciting, it's wonderful. My first four years were like that. My 34 years since have not been like that. But that's where the testing begins. That's where you find out. It's revealed by the, the fiery trials we go through. And the fire will test each one's work, everyone's contribution to the body of Christ. Of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there's some damage that will happen there as fire damages. Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple, does anything that leads it to destruction, schisms, divisions, and so on, If anyone defiles the temple of God, that living organism that is the body of Christ, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Christ in us, brethren, is a shared experience. We are all individuals, but we share Christ in us. And it comes with a communal responsibility. We've talked about the social effects of sin, right? How when you sin, if if I take a gun and shoot you, I've sinned. You did nothing, but you suffered because of my sin. That's a social respect. Social influence of sin. Righteousness works the same way. In fact, if you go back and look at the wording of the second commandment, you recognize that it's much more effectual. I just killed one person. But if I do something Christ-like for another, it tends to grow. He says the sins of the fathers visit the children to the third and fourth generation, second commandment. But those who do what God wants them to do, those who obey God, those who live as God wants them to live, affect generations to the thousands. It's much more powerful. Christ in us is a shared experience. Yet, some forsake the body when God summons us to appear before him. And in so doing, they forsake him without even realizing it. It's Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as the end draws near. Some do not bother to come at all. And I'm not talking about those who are invalid or who are sick and can't make it here. When I talk to them, they would get here any way they possibly could, but they know they just can't. And it's very sad to see others who can come but don't. Some uh, some come rather to get than to give. We see that every week. Sometimes I see it in myself. It's something I have to repent of. Some push their own opinions rather than to feed on the word of truth. I've been approached by people before who, says, who said, well, you know what, I've got my own beliefs. Uh, I, I, I don't really come here to hear the, the messages. I just want, I come here for the brethren. And that scares me. I mean, for the brethren. As a shepherd, I don't want someone coming for the sheep. <laughs> That's you see a wolf. I want someone coming for the grass <laughs> that, that God led me to lead them to, his field, his, the greenery of his word. Sheep eat grass. Who's coming for, who's coming for the sheep? That's a little, that scares me. And all this is in disrespect of 
of Christ within his church. All of this. And this is the stuff that's got to be removed. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 3, let's continue reading verse 17. Paul writes, now, I'm sorry. No, this is 1 Corinthians 3. It's 1 Corinthians 11. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 17 through 19. I wanted to keep reading there, but I can't because I have to move. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 19. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. This is the church at Corinth. They were not coming together in this mindset of respecting Christ within themselves and respecting Christ in one another. What was it leading to? Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Uh, divisions is the Greek word schisma. Uh, we, we get uh, schemes and uh, other uh, schism is actually an English word as well. It means uh, division. It, the word is translated in other places as splits or tears. So there were splits or tears within the church at Corinth. Um, he says, and I partly believe it, verse 19, he says, For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. The word for factions is the word Greek word heresies. It's literally spelled H-A-I-R-E-S-I-S, heresies. And heresies, the, the root word there literally means choices or options or versions of, of Christ, of truth, of, of, of respecting Christ within and in others, or is the word of God leading through the spirit of God so that everybody's on the same page? Why, why are there options or choices? Everyone should be seeking to do the same thing. We'll read that in a moment. Um, this word approved is the word dokimas. And the, the word for recognized here in that sentence, so that uh, for there must also be factions that those who are approved, dokimas, might be recognized. Recognized is actually, it actually means literally brought into existence. It's like those, those schisms have to be there so that, that Christ within can be brought into existence. Here it's translated like being made known or being made evident. But the deeper understanding of that is it actually it requires that almost. Not that God wants division, but it, for Christ to be seen or developed within, there have to be those divisions. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1 10. This is where Paul first addresses the divisions in Corinth. Um, and he says this, just this verse. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. In, in, in uh, the last major split that we had back in 94-95, no one was talking at services because everybody was afraid that nobody would agree. I mean, the fellowship had been drawn to nil because... You were afraid that somebody would say something you disagreed with or that you'd say something that somebody else disagreed with. So that's that's the way it went. This is not the way it's supposed to go. Can we say that about ourselves with respect to the word of God? Do we all speak the same things? Probably not. But do we aspire to that? And do we reflect that in respect of Christ in us all? This is what Paul's talking about here. That there be no divisions, no schisms among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Do we let the sins that every one of us is struggling with separate us from others? Or do we see that struggle going on in others and 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 seek to defer, seek to help, Seek to understand. That's what the body of Christ does. This hand doesn't work against this hand. Or if this hand gets something dirty on it, this hand doesn't go wandering away because it's disgusted. It helps the other one wash itself. The body works in unison with the head. And we should see that in ourselves and in others and respect that. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, I'll just refer to you to this one. 
He says again, there should be no schism in the body, but that the other members should have the same care for one another. Notice these things that describe the body of Christ. It's recognizable. It comes to existence in times of trial and divisions and tears. It leads us all to speak the same thing. Not to seek contention, not to argue, but to understand, to align with the word of God. Not our individual interpretations of it, but led by his spirit to understand it in truth and apply it and practice it in truth. It's what we're striving for in these uh, these Bible discussions that we have almost monthly. The body of Christ is perfectly joined together in the same mind and judgment, the same care for one another. The true church of God, the true body of Christ, is a spiritual organism, spiritually one, spiritually identified, the true temple of God's Holy Spirit. This is distinguishable, it's discernible, and we need to have that level of discernment. Christ in his church is a mystery that is only revealed to those who are led by his spirit to live by his every word. As those who only profess Christ continue to divide and separate, those who respect Christ within will look for every reason to come together, especially as we approach the Passover of Jesus Christ.